Welcome to The Hammer Factor, where we help successful athletes share their genius with the world. On this episode, we have a true running genius who is the current 100-mile world record holder and now 100-mile treadmill record holder, which really caught our eye here at The Hammer Factor. Welcome to the show, Zach Bitter. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me on, John. Yeah, man, my pleasure. Uh, Before we get into the show and a little bit more about some of your uh, exploits, uh, share something with our audience that most people don't know about you. Yeah, that's a, a good question. I, I have a couple that I think are kind of funny, interesting ones. Uh, one is I at one point worked for a circus, and uh, the second one is I actually did a commercial with Alyssa Milano once upon a time as well. <laughs> what did you do in the circus? I actually, it was, I was really young. I, I think I was about to be a freshman in high school, and I lived in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which is home of Circus World Museum. So... The summer after my eighth grade year, I applied for a job there to work in their their big top concession stand. So, I uh, it, it sounds better when I say worked at a circus than when I tell what actually what I actually did there. But I was basically selling popcorn, cotton candy, and all that that stuff. So, <laughs> what, what's the circus culture like? I'm just trying to envision. Uh-huh. I mean, is, yeah, it, I is think... it like a bunch of carnies or how is it? <laughs> it was a little different, I think. At at Circus World just because Circus World Museum is more or less stationary. They do do a trip out to Milwaukee once a year for a huge parade, but they're more kind of like seasonal. So like depending on where what your role is within that, it's everything from just like year round kind of like backroom, like business management type stuff to like the performers who are, they're a little more uh, mobile, I would say, because they're going to be around a lot in the summer when the big top shows open, doing whatever it is they do, whether that be like uh, high rope or um, any of the circus show stuff. And then they'll probably move on to something else when the winter months come around in the Midwest. But uh, it's an interesting group. I was actually, I actually worked pretty closely with a couple of guys whose dad was uh, the, he he ran, it was owned by the state, but he operated it. He was like the manager. So it was kind of interesting to kind of hear those guys talk about you know, just, you know, everything that they had and had seen while they worked there as well. <laughs> Circus. I like that. One. That's <laughs> one of our better interesting tidbits. <laughs> oh man. So where are you from and, and what were you like as a kid long before you were ever running a hundred miles and that kind of thing? Yeah. So when I was born in uh, New Ulm, Minnesota, but my family moved to Grand Island, Nebraska when I was like a year and a half old. So my kind of first memories were in uh, Grand Island, Nebraska and we we moved to Baraboo, Wisconsin when I was going into third grade. So most of my life actually I spent in, in the Midwest in Wisconsin and I went to middle school, high school there, college there, and then ultimately moved out west after I had been teaching for a few years in Wisconsin. And um, But yeah, my, my, my youth, I guess, was not too out of the norm. I was really fortunate that my parents were very flexible with me doing a lot of extracurricular stuff with sports and things like that, but they were never really pushing me to do any one thing or any specific thing. They were just like, you know, keep busy, do stuff, don't be lazy. And, uh, but beyond that, it's kind of your choice. So I played a lot of the traditional sports, you know, like the baseball, football, basketball, soccer, um, and track and field and things like that. And that's where I probably first identified that running was the sport I'd really want to kind of focus my most of my energies on anyway by the time I got well into high school and then certainly into college. What uh what were what were your disciplines in running early on? 
Yeah, uh, in high school, it's kind of self-determined a bit. If you're a distance person like I was, you're basically going to be doing like the 1600 and the 3200 in track and then uh, cross country in Wisconsin's 5K across the board. So those are kind of like the three go-tos if you're a distance runner. And um, I definitely skewed to the longer distance stuff. When I got into college, that kind of branches out a little bit and then it's basically 5K to 10K range where I would do a lot of 5K, 10K stuff in track and then 8K for cross country uh, D3 does 8K for cross country. D1 does more 10K stuff. But um, those are kind of the ranges. That happens in 3Ks every once in a while as like fill gaps for meets where I wasn't, you know, targeting kind of my goal event and things like that. But uh, the longer the better for me. And that's kind of one of the most valuable lessons I learned in college was I like the long stuff. So that's, I guess it shouldn't be a surprise I ended up in ultra marathon. <laughs> <laughs> were, were you successful as a, as a scholastic collegiate athlete? Uh, you know, I was just good enough probably in high school to be able to justify walking on a smaller program. Um, I had some D2 schools recruit me and things like that. But uh, for me, it was like it was kind of a secondary direction when it came to college. I was definitely there from an academic standpoint first. And uh, when I decided University of Wisconsin Stevens Point was where I wanted to go, then it was kind of like, well, if they have a cross country and track team. Let's see what ha- what I have to do to you know, beyond that. So I met with a coach, talked to him, got a feel for the program and then, you know, showed up on the first day and made the team. So, uh, just kind of stuck with that while I was in college, but, um, I was more or less a moderate talent, I guess, amongst a very competitive division three school. Stevens point is what well, was routinely competitive in the national level. So I had a lot of really fast teammates and, um, I was kind of moderate amongst them, I would say. So I wasn't I wasn't a rock star by any stretch of the imagination. I was pretty fortunate to, you know, make it on the varsity team or get to the conference meet and things like that. So um, it really gave me, I think, the opportunity to really learn the sport and kind of find out, like, well, why are we doing what we're doing? Like, why do we do this mm-hmm. workout here and that workout there? And just kind of begin to put together just like an understanding of, you know, what parts of the sport I really liked, what parts I really had to work harder at and kind of just find myself within the sport, I think. So then when I was done with college and no longer had like the team structure and the race season atmosphere, I could kind of more focus on the parts of the sport that I really enjoyed. And then it's kind of been a, about a 10 year journey from there for, for ultra marathons. So how did you get into ultra marathoning? Did you just like was it a traditional you signed up for a marathon did a 50k and moved up or did you originally start out being like i want to run 100 yeah no it wasn't quite as clear as that i think the first time i ever even heard of an ultra marathon i believe it was my senior year in high school my my uh, track coach who was probably the first person i had met that actually both understood and participated in the sport of running and in a way that was like really like like deep to him personally as well. So he had just a lot of knowledge compared to me about the ins and outs of just the sport in general, as much as he did just the methodology behind training for it. And he was telling me about this guy who, uh, was, had run like, I think at the time it was like 262 consecutive miles without stopping and was going to try to do 300. And, uh, you know, that was the first time I ever heard of that. I remember thinking, wow, that's, that's nuts that people just go and run that far for, for the sake of running that far. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it got me kind of interested enough where I was, I kept it in the back of my mind. I never really thought too much about it for a couple of years after that. But then 
when I was in college, I actually read the book about that guy. His name is Dean Carnassus, who's more or less uh, um, pretty recognizable in the sport of ultra marathon at this point. So uh, I read his book, and that kind of filled me in a little more about the sport as a whole, just kind of getting his perspective on everything. And uh, at that point, I want to say I was probably a junior in college or somewhere around there when I read that book. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to do an ultra marathon someday. But at the time, I think I would have been like 20, 21. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll wait till I'm like 30. I'll just exhaust my abilities in like 5K, 10K, marathon and that sort of stuff. And then maybe I'll try out some ultra marathons. But uh, as fate would have it, I was looking for a marathon to jump into in the fall of 2010 and came across a 50 miler that was only about an hour from where I lived. And I didn't even know there were ultra marathons in Wisconsin at the time. So <laughs> I was uh, surprised to see it there. And I thought, well, um, I was actually going back to grad school that following uh, spring, or I'm sorry, fall semester. So this particular race had a prize purse on it. I was like, well, if I could win that, I could, it will help pay for some of these, uh, these uh, graduate credits. <laughs> so I signed up for it. I was like, okay, I'm just going to go for this. And it was, uh, it was the North Face Midwest Regional, and they label it as Madison, Wisconsin, but it was actually a little closer to Milwaukee and the Kettle Moraine Trails. And uh, I Was this I part of up- their en- endurance challenge thing? That they, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think it was maybe the third year they did it. I want to say 2008 was the first year that they ran those. So it was still relatively new, but it was one of the first kind of like race series that was went kind of mainstream in, in the U.S., whereas a lot of the ultra marathon scene at that time was still kind of individual events. There were some very big iconic ones like Western States, Leadville, Badwater, um, Vermont, and you know some of these big kind of ones that have been around for a while. But uh, the North Face Endurance Challenge was one of the first that I remember having like distinct regional championships and then also their national championship in San Francisco. So uh, it was kind of cool to have that as be one of my first first ones to do. And, uh, you know, it went well. I won it. So I think at that point, coming from the perspective of, well, if I have a really good day at like a relatively small local marathon, I might get in the top three or something like that. Or in college, like, you know, if I'm in the, if, if I'm, if I'm just on varsity, I'm happy kind of a mindset to, to winning was definitely a little bit of a pull to want to want to kind of explore that sport a little more. So I actually waited a whole year to do another one. But after that in 2011, I was hooked completely and I haven't really specified for anything but ultra marathon since then. So what do you think your key to success? So you, you went from, what was your longest distance that you had, had raced before that? Uh, I'd done a few marathons with not a whole lot of structure, just a lot of volume and training. And then I had done about a 30 mile training run before that 50 miler. So from a race standpoint, I almost doubled the distance I was going, um, which was kind of a bit of a theme when I did my first hundred miler, the furthest I'd run was 50 miles. So, <laughs> um, some of the, I think what makes ultra marathoning kind of interesting is just when you're, especially in the early stages, there's a lot of unknown and part of the peel or the draw is like, well, what is it like to run 100 miles when you've never gone more than 50 before? Or what is it like to run 50 miles when 30 is the furthest you had gone previously? Uh, so that was kind of an interesting draw to me, too, was just that that exploration of just like how far can I go? Or uh, once you've kind of done it once, how fast can I go now that I kind of know the ins and outs of it a little better? Uh, but, yeah, it's kind of it's an interesting sport. And it's one of those where I think. I know I was included in this, and you hear about some of this stuff. The first year, first thought is, "Well, I'll never do that. That's crazy." Then you do one, and then it's like kind of a slippery slope where 
first there's a 50k or 50 mile and then oh now i'm gonna do 100k now i'm gonna do 100 mile now i'm gonna do now there's like 200 mile races six day events and things like that so it's just a such a wide range of different options within the sport that uh, i think it, it has a lot of potential to invite in a variety of different kind of endeavors when you did that first race what do you think your what was looking back what do you think were kind of your keys to the win there what do you what do you think got you to number one yeah, uh, you know, I think just with that event and ultra marathon in general, I've been pretty, I guess if you want to look at kind of what some of my strengths are within the sport, I think I'm just able to tolerate a pretty high amount of training volume without getting hurt or without burning out or feeling like it's kind of crossing that line where the negatives outweigh the positives of adding more. Um, you know, I'll routinely hit 150 mile training weeks when I'm kind of peaking for an event and there's a lot of folks that you know they just won't be able to do that that'll either be too much and they'll burn out or they'll be too much and they'll get injured so i can sometimes i think close the talent gap a little bit by being able to kind of out train to a degree interesting um, there's there's definitely guys um and gals in the sport who can do that kind of volume and then sometimes even more so uh, i'm not alone in that that but i think it, it definitely helps and I, I definitely recognize that i had friends and teammates in college where you know, if they were training anywhere even near a 100-mile training week, it was basically a recipe for an injury. And it just seemed like if they tempted fate, it was not worth the risk. So for me, it was like I felt like I could just keep pushing that further and further without necessarily feeling feeling like it was negatively impacting me. And I was seeing the progress from it too. So uh, I would probably fall into the category of like a high-volume responder uh, in terms of an endurance athlete. So that's probably been a, a strength that skews more towards ultra marathon than it than it would for some of the more traditional distances do you think that is would you credit that to just simple genetics your style of running an intensity load do you sleep a lot is there any any pattern or reason you think that you can handle that kind of volume versus other people yeah you know i think some of it's probably genetics to a degree because like i was I built myself into high volume fairly early in my kind of collegiate career and then continued that afterwards. So like I've gone through a variety of different kind of training programs and a couple different nutritional strategies all in the context of a high volume training program and it's I've never really been at a risk of injury. Um, I did notice earlier in my ultra career that I wasn't responding quite as positively to some of the rigors of racing frequently and training high volume when I was following a more traditional high carbohydrate diet and I actually switched to a high fat, low carb diet in the end of 2011 and that seemed to really help things like sleep for me and help things like recovery for me personally. So I think some of it also has to do with just being able to understand what's gonna work for me versus what's maybe more mainstream or what works for the average person and then also being really curious about some of the stuff and paying attention to, you know, even when I need a day off, taking a day off versus pushing through and kind of really being mindful of that stuff. I think that's really, really helped me to be able to tolerate some of that higher, higher volume stuff over the course of time. But there's certainly a genetic component too, because like, you know, my college teammates that were running lower volume than me and would always get injured, they weren't necessarily doing anything too terribly different and just happen to be the case for them. So um, I think it's just a variety. It doesn't necessarily mean high volume is the only way either. I've coached 
clients who are relatively low volume and they respond a lot to more uh, more like speed sessions or things like that where or low impact exercises that are going to be maybe a little less jarring to their to their their body and they do just fine with it. So some of it's just kind of discovering who you are and knowing where you can take risks and where you shouldn't take risks. And I've been fortunate enough to be injury free long enough, I guess, that I've been able to kind of tease all a lot of that out for myself as an individual and find out what's going to work for me and keep me up and running. Hmm. Fascinating. So a little later in my interview, I was going to get into this, but I want to seg right into it because you just brought it up. Tell me about your diet. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely put myself in a category of high fat, low carb, which I think sometimes confuses people because there's a lot of kind of like subcategories within that too, where you can get like kind of classic keto or like ketogenic diets, which are traditionally like very low or completely absent of carbohydrate in some cases. Um, and then you kind of have a more broad categorization of high fat, low carb, where you're not eliminating carbohydrates altogether or going kind of basement low, but you are being mindful of kind of where your primary macronutrients are coming from. And for me, that's kind of where I fit my primary macronutrient, no matter where I am in training, whether that's peak training or recovery off season, I'm having more fat than carbohydrates. Uh, the question for me is always just uh, how much carbohydrate do I want to bring back from a performance standpoint? So I'll do I'll go from phases of the year where I would fit into like a classic keto framework if it's like off season or a recovery week or something like that. But when I'm in peak training and really focusing on building volume and intensity, I'll bring my carbohydrates back up to like um, usually anywhere between 10 to 20 percent, and rarely but sometimes up to 30 percent of my intake. So. Um, it's not an, a tool I've necessarily disposed of, so to speak. I, I don't demonize carbohydrates, but I just use them maybe a little differently than you'd see in a standard endurance pr protocol where it's going to make the make up the foundation of the diet and be you know, upwards of 60, maybe even up to 80% of the intake. Hmm. You know, there was a school of thought for many years, you know, get, you know, carbo load and, and you know, this uh, get your pasta and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. And there's a lot of research and there's a lot of people who are having success with totally different diets. What do you, th like if, when you're at 20% carbs, how many grams of, of, of carbs are you, does that equate for you in a day? Yeah, um, on average, I'm probably around 100 to 150 grams if you just kind of span out over the course of the year. And then if you look at it from real pointed points, like if you grab random days out of the calendar year, it can fluctuate inside and out of that. So for example, like, you know, I might be doing a 30 mile training run one day, but another day I might be completely taking off. So those are two very different energy demands. So like I might flex up well above 150 grams on a day where I'm running 30 miles or a day where I'm racing, but then I'm likely going to be pairing that with a rest day or a very easy day following. So then I might go down to like, you know, less than 30 grams or something like that. So it, it kind of ends up averaging out to be about hundred to 150 grams with some flexibility to kind of promote performance on days where that's the the big uh, objective and then also promote recovery when that's kind of more where my my focus is in wow interesting it, 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 do you know any other athletes who follow this regimen yeah you know it's gotten a lot more popular within the extreme endurance sport the ultra marathon stuff and i i think that just makes sense when you look at race day intensity for an ultra marathon and kind of the the big one in North America is the 100 miler where a lot of people are trying to kind of like fine tune that distance or they're working towards that distance. I mean, the intensity is just very low relative to say like a 5K, a 10K or even a marathon. 
So that opens up a lot of windows, I think, in terms of how you can feel for that. Uh, when your intensity is that much lower, you can lean on the more oxygen expensive metabolic process of burning fat, which I think is a huge tool to have if you're talking about a sport where, you know, digestive issues can be, you know, as frequent as 60% of the time is where I think they put it, the most recent position paper. So uh, one of the biggest kind of variables that 100 mile ultra marathon runners are trying to kind of juggle is how do I take in enough energy to defend muscle glycogen so I have the you know, the energy at the end to kind of run fast in versus fade away. And how you do that is there's different ways to do that. So I think the way I do it is one way where I get relatively fat adapted or I, I skew my, my body's ability to oxidize fat at a higher rate so that it's easier for me to defend glycogen on race day because I just don't need to take in as much in order to do that. Whereas you could have someone who's following a high carbohydrate diet they're going to have to take in a lot more exogenous carbohydrate on race day in order to do that same task of defend their glycogen. So sometimes it just comes down to how do you perform with uh, those type of fueling strategies. So, I mean, there's no shortage of folks in the sport who can, you know, put away upwards of four, sometimes 500 calories an hour. And, you know, if, if you got a gut like that, then as long as that's working, you can probably sail pretty smoothly on a high carbohydrate diet or kind of train your gut to be able to do that. Um, then there's guys that it just doesn't work for. I'm one of them. <laughs> so, you know, for me, I can't even imagine trying to force five, four or 500 calories an hour down during the course of an ultra marathon. So I'm targeting closer to like maybe 40 to at most 50 grams an hour. So around 200 calories an hour. Or so that's kind of where I put my ceiling where I can basically guarantee I'm not going to have any major digestive issues. So if I can keep it at or below that, then I can really control that variable. So then it just becomes a question of does that defend my muscle glycogen? And if I'm following a high carbohydrate diet, it's getting a little iffy if I'm going to be able to defend muscle glycogen at that lower fueling average versus if I skew my carbs down, um, you know, to a, to where fast the primary macronutrient, I'm, I'm pushing that needle a little further over on fat oxidation and then I can defend my muscle glycogen through that as well as the smaller amounts of exogenous carbohydrates I would take in on race day. Uh, so other, yeah, there's other guys in there. Like the, some of the bigger names is a uh, Jeff Browning. He's, uh, he's actually just a really interesting guy in general. He's almost 50 and he's had a string of success at the Western States 100, which is the most, uh, competitive hundred miler in North America and, and likely the second most competitive in the world behind maybe UTMB out in Europe. And he's been, third, fourth, fifth, and I think eighth there the last four years. Uh, this year got canceled, but you know, his from 45, 46, 47, and 48, he's been in the top 10 at that, that event with his highest third place at what most people consider a relatively older age to be up in those positions. And he follows a very similar diet to me. And he's interesting to me because he's, since he's older, he's tried a lot of other stuff. He had raced like, I think, I think he had done... 1500 milers before he switched to a high fat low carb diet and he basically did it just because he was noticing all sorts of different issues that he couldn't seem to clear up kind of doing the standard protocol and when he switched it was like for him it, he, he responded very very quickly so for him it was a no-brainer uh and he's so he's a guy i always point to where it's like especially when i'm talking to folks i, I try not to like talk people into doing my <laughs> nutritional approach i try to just provide information and let them decide where they want to start from and what a lot of times ends up happening with some of these people who find themselves doing better with a high fat low carb diet is they've tried 
the moderate to high carbohydrate diet and it either worked for them for a while, I put myself in that category, and then it stopped working for them. So they needed to make a change if they wanted to kind of continue on. And uh, usually when you kind of just explain it the way I typically do, then if they're curious enough to want to try it, they reach out or they do some research of their own and, and kind of play around with it. But um, I really like it because it's just one more kind of thing to play around with and one more uh, uh, element of the sport that I think makes things a little bit intriguing is this nutrition side of things. Man, I, I, I'm right there with you on the intriguing part. So in this high-fat diet and, and uh, kind of the way that you have, you know, obviously – I can tell you've spent a good deal of time thinking about it, just listening to you. How are you getting these fat calories? What foods are you getting them from? Yeah, I'm doing, um, I've done a variety of different things. I've been doing it almost nine years now. So I've had a chance once I kind of got, once I've been doing it for about a year and a half to two years, I had really what I would consider like a pretty good template of what I thought worked well for me in terms of fluctuating my carbohydrate intake where I nailed down like, okay, during this phase of the season, I'll target this kind of amount of carbohydrate. During this phase of the season, I'll target this much and found kind of my personal roadmap that works really well for me. And then it was just like, well, now that I kind of know those macronutrient ratios that I want to be focusing on, now what do they make up? So I've tried a variety of different things over the course of my career. I've tried like mostly plant-based. Um, I've never done strict vegan by any stretch, but uh, um, I've tried mostly plant-based. I've tried mostly like animal product based and usually I end up somewhere in between where it's a combination of like plant and animal products that uh, culminate the macronutrient profile I'm looking for. So some that kind of have found a typical spot in my diet over the, over the years has been um, a lot of eggs, a lot of fish, uh, olive oils, coconut oil, um, a lot of like fatty cuts of meat. Uh, those are kind of the, the, the go-tos I'll do. Um, I'll do like nuts and seeds from time to time too, especially when I'm in higher volume training and I'm just trying to get enough energy in for the next session. I'll do a lot of non-starchy vegetables uh, just to kind of you know create, I guess, more or less a, a, a vehicle for some of the fats and the oils and things that kind of make up the fat portion mm -hmm. of my diet. And um, for the carbohydrate sources, I'll usually do mostly like fruits, um, like berries, melons, raw honey, potatoes, sweet potatoes, that sort of thing. Beets, those will usually make up the primary base or foundation of my carbohydrate sources. Um, and when I'm when I'm really kind of humming along and you know having a pretty high energy demand, I'll do some products. I work with a company called S Fuels, and they make some lifestyle products as well as kind of race day like performance type products so when I'm trying to kind of dial that stuff in they they've got their their uh train and and life products which are mostly fat and then they have their race plus product which is has some fat but mostly carbohydrate so I'll use their lifestyle stuff to kind of fill in some of the gaps from the fat side of things if I'm doing a big workout I'll use their race plus product on race day I'll use their race plus plus product um and kind of go from there what about avocados, man? I'm a huge avocado fan. Yeah, I uh, I don't eat a lot of just straight avocados, but I do love guacamole. Um, and I, I have a few jars of avocado oil that I've used too. So <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't mind them at all. And I'll usually have avocados mostly if uh, um, I'm getting like a, a salad or something, making a salad or something or a stir fry. I'll put a 
put some of those in there. But yeah, those are a good one too. They're, they kind of like flow in and out of my diet. I'll go on phases where like I get a kick and buy like three or four of them and then I'll eat them for a week or so and then I'll not get them for a while. So <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of foods that kind of do that though, where they kind of come in and out of my diet depending yeah. on just what I'm interested in at the moment. And then the ones I mentioned are the ones that are a little more kind of mainstream throughout the course of the year and they, they typically don't float in and out as much. Now, now ultra running as a sport in general is, it seems to be very mountain based. Um, you know, UTMB, like you talk about, you know, uh, Western States 100, you know, these, these iconic events. Um, and yet you have the hundred mile world record that was on a track. Now, how did you blend those two? And when did the idea come up that you were going to set this record on the track? I'm just trying to get into your head about how that whole goal was formed um, through your ultra running experience. Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's, it's a good insight too. I think like, especially in North America, folks usually find ultra marathon through the trails and that definitely draws kind of the girth of the, of the fields in, in our sport, uh, especially trail and then trail or mountain trails, kind of another component of that, that just draws a lot of attention. Um, but you know, there's also some big road races too that have quite a bit of competition, competition. One of the most competitive ultra marathons of any distance is probably the comrades marathon which is about 56 miles over in south africa and that's on a road so like it's there is some like if you look outside of north america you can kind of find a little bit of the the intrigue outside a little more readily than you can probably in north america uh but for me personally you know i i got into the sport on the trails i did only trail races in 2010 11 and 12 and most of 2013 even um Although I didn't know I did do a road marathon or a road 50 miler in 2012 in 2013, but it was like, it was like a fire road of basically crushed gravel that went through, uh, over a mountain range. So it was about as, uh, about as non road as you can get with still being considered a road. Uh, and that's kind of when I started to discover that there was this kind of flat component to the sport. Uh, I had run my first real taste actually I did I was peaking for this race in 2013 the Tussie Mountain Back 50 miler and it's the the US uh, road championships is the one I just talked about with the rolling fire roads mm-hmm. and um, I had won it the year before and I got second that year but I ran a, a better race faster time and they actually had just changed the course and added it made it a little more difficult so I was a little bummed that I didn't win but also like intrigued that I had ran faster and since that was kind of my last race of the season that I had planned out, I just got curious. I'm like, well, I wonder how fast I can kind of recover from from these races and do do another one. So I had this plan where I was going to do a 50-miler the following weekend and then another 50-miler and just see if I could do three 50-milers, three weekends. Um, and when I got kind of midway through that first week between the first and second one, I was feeling so good that I decided to take that second, that middle one off the calendar and just – like stay fresh for that third one and give myself two weeks or I ended up being about 13 days. Cause I think Tussie was a Sunday and the Chicago lakefront, which was that last one was on a Saturday. So I just kind of more or less stayed a little more fresh for that third one, uh, which ended up being the second one, I guess, and went and ran five hours and 12 minutes and 36 seconds there, which was fastest 50 mile of time in, in the country for that year. And, 
Um, still a ways off what the world record was at the time. I think the world record was like 450 thereabouts. So um, it was uh, a, a far shot from that. But I was super intrigued because I had given myself 13 days recovery after it was supposed to be my A race for the year. And I felt like I had a better race there. And the thing that kind of rung in my head from that was, well, this was a pancake that flat tape so course. That is so fast, dude. That <laughs> is just so, like, it's just boggling my mind to just, anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go <laughs> no, that's fine. But yeah, so it's, um, you know, I think that was my first experience where I recognized how important specificity of training really is in the sense that, like, here we have this sport where there is such a variety of terrains. You can go from, like, 20% inclines up, mountains at 10,000 feet to, you know, sea level flat road races or 400 meter track races and then everything in between. And what I recognized at Chicago Lakefront in 2013 was, you know, I've been running a lot of flat roads <laughs> my whole life, basically, you know, living in Wisconsin, I didn't get out on the trails too that often. And when I did, they weren't steep, like two, three mile continuous climbs. They were small little, like a couple hundred foot hills that you go up and down with at best. So it really clicked with me. Like if I really wanted to nail a race and feel like I maximized my potential, I had to train for the train I was going to race in. So after that race, I got invited to the desert solstice track invitational here in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and the, this guy, John Olson had just been become the first American to break 12 hours and a hundred miles. He ran 1159. And I remember going in after I accepted the invitation to that event thinking, well, if I run a 512 for 50 miles, surely I can run like a 545 for the first 50. And then if I can just eke out like a 613 for the second 50 miles, then I'll squeak under his American record. So in my mind, it made perfect sense. It was just like, well, why wouldn't I be able to do that? Um, which was probably a little naive, but it was probably good at the time too because it, it, I had justified my reason for being there and I justified my reason for pacing myself the way I did that day. And I ended up running 11 hours and 47 minutes and breaking that American record. So that was like my first big finish, I guess, in terms of the sport as a whole that kind of got me more national and some international attention. And it also, similar to the 50 miler, highlighted like the specificity aspect of the sport. So I got, that? that was 2013 in December. Okay. Okay. So after that race, I basically kind of set a goal for myself just to see like, well, how fast can I run 100 miles when there's very few obstacles in the way other than just the running aspect of it. So this whole concept of being on a 400 meter track was appealing to me because you just eliminate so many logistics from like fueling standpoint, crew standpoint, you basically have whatever you want whenever you have it. You just have to be able to get over the monotony of that loop or just like the, the never changing atmosphere of running on a 400 meter track. And that didn't seem to bother me too much. I didn't seem to get too discouraged by that and I didn't seem to get overly destroyed by the frequent turning either so for me it made sense to kind of target that type of an event as part of my year calendar year going forward and see how kind of fast I could bring my 100 mile time down to so man so you go out and are you by yourself do you have like a crew of people with you when you're going to go set the 100 mile world record just kind of describe the day that you threw down an 11 hour, 19 minute. I mean, that's just, it's just hard for me to believe. It's hard for me to fathom <laughs> going that fast for that long. So just kind of walk us through that day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think when I, when I look back at that performance, it's like, I almost needed every 
every other hundred miler on a track I've done to kind of really put myself in a position to have the tools from a mental standpoint to really execute the way I did. Uh, so I definitely leaned on a lot of experience from the previous almost six years of kind of trying to target that type of a performance. But, uh, you know, I went into the event actually, I was pretty confident based on my last four or five weeks of training that I was in a position where if I had a good day, I could break the world record for a hundred miles. Uh, but it was also, I was a little, I wouldn't say worried, but I was also aware that I had had a relatively fast turnaround from spending the first half of the year essentially out on kind of steeper technical trails preparing for the San Diego 100 mile. And uh, I had actually chopped off part of my training buildup for this particular race because it was just an opportunity. I didn't want to pass up on being in the Pettit Center, uh, which is an Olympic training facility. They keep indoors and they keep it at like 60 degrees because it's got a speed skating rink and ice skating rink in there. So it was just a really nice setup. And uh, had I not had that really good buildup leading in, I don't know how confident I would have been to, to go after the world record that day. But um, as, as it ended up playing out, I, I had the confidence to kind of put myself at a pace that I felt was um, fast enough to put me in good position, but not so fast that I would kind of blow up at the end. And um, I just kind of determined whenever I do a 400 meter or this, this track was a little longer than 400. I think it was like 430 some odd meters, if I remember right, um, or 440 something. And, you know, so what I do for those is I look at what I want for a finishing time. I'll subtract usually about five or six minutes uh, just because I know I'm going to stop to use the bathroom probably two, three times if I'm having a really good day. And uh, then just calculate what my splits will be for miles calculate what my splits I want for the loop for each little lap. So then I can kind of spot check along the way. So I was, uh, the, the early miles are sometimes a little nerve wracking cause you just know you have a long day coming ahead of you and you're running at a pretty low effort compared to what you can do. Cause you're saving yourself. And you know, I would, I, I want to say when I got around 40 miles, things had gone pretty smooth through about 30. When I started approaching 40, I started getting a little worried because I started falling out of my, my lap split range a little bit. And I actually asked myself, like, if I, I – for a minute I considered, like, okay, maybe I just don't quite have it today. Uh, and I considered, like, just kind of scaling back and settling for a slower lap split and, you know, just, just to save myself for a race down the road if I wasn't going to have a, a really good day that day. And uh, at that point I just thought about – kind of, well, think about how many weeks and hours I had spent building up for that event. And then the fact that this event was in an, in a place that was like pretty unique being at the indoor facility at the Pettit Center. And I just told myself, well, this type of opportunity isn't going to present itself every year or all that often. So I should probably stick it out for a little longer and just see if I can get back in range. And so I just said, okay, I'm just gonna do a couple laps, get back in range, see how that feels. And if I get some momentum, kind of carry it. And so I did that. I got back in the range I was trying to target. And what, what's after the, what's that mile pace at this point? Um, let's see. I think it was about six four six fifty or so, somewhere right around there. Okay, so um, forty miles in, you're running six fifty miles. Yeah, okay. mm -hmm. that's what, about what I had averaged. So uh, 
I when I when I when I was at 40, I actually started doing. You find weird things to do with your time when you're on a track like that. So sometimes I'll I'll look at my pace and I'll start kind of extrapolating forward and think like, oh, where will I be at 50? Where will I be at 100k? Where will I be here if if I just maintain or if I slow down a little bit or if I speed up? So you can kind of get a get an idea of what would be a good benchmark versus a bad and a really good benchmark going forward. Uh, so I did that at 40. By the time I got to 50. I was um, I was pretty close to on pace, maybe a little faster than what I calculated at 40. And then when I got to 100K, I was I got there maybe like five minutes quicker than I had planned back at 40. So I basically started kind of like gaining momentum through that kind of middle section. Uh, and that's kind of I I like to point that out because there's so easy to either let your mind spiral negatively. Um, but it will also spiral positively if you let it or if you focus on it. Yeah. So like, I mean, I was one decision away from basically letting it go the wrong direction. And then, I mean, who knows what would have happened that day had I done that versus kind of just, okay, let's just give it a couple more laps and see if momentum turns. And, uh, you know, it did. And when I got to, to a hundred K the excitement of getting there like five minutes ahead, I think I came through in like seven hours and two minutes, if I remember right. Uh, and I had predicted 707 or 708, I think when I was at 40. And so I, that gave me a lot of like excitement. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm gaining momentum here. And that was also kind of motivating for me because I came through 50 at 540, which if you just double is 11, 1120, the world record at the time was 1128. So when I got to a hundred K had, and I had been speeding up. I was like, okay, so now I'm I'm really in a good position here, to uh, to still be, to to be on pace to break the world record. And I was still a little nervous at that point in time though, because in 2015 I did a hundred miler in 11 hours and 40 minutes, and I had come through 80 miles at that race on pace for the world record. I had I had to average seven minute pace for the last 20 miles, and the current world record pace was a 6.52 and a half, I think. So I was actually could run slower than world record pace for the last 20 miles and still get it. And I was just like, the wheels were just coming off and I could hardly average 7.30 pace for that last 20. So I let it slip away. I broke my American record, which is cool, but um, I felt like I kind of missed an opportunity that day. So I knew what could happen at mile 80. So when I, I wasn't too, uh, I was trying to not get too anxious, I guess, or um, too ahead of myself, even at hundred K, but the momentum of getting there early was enough to kind of carry me to around 68, 70 miles. And at that point in the race, I really kind of learned something that works really well for me in training, uh, that I hadn't done as much of historically, or if I had, I didn't really necessarily lean on it as much as I did for this day. But it's just this idea where, um, when I do my long runs leading in, I always pretend like I'm at that point in a race. So if I have a 30 mile long run scheduled for Saturday, when I start that long run, I pretend like I'm at mile 70 of a hundred miler and just mm -hmm. in, like visualize what it's like to do that last 30 miles. And I did that probably six or seven times maybe leading into the race. So then when I got to my longest long run for this particular event was 32 and a half miles. So when I got to about 68, I just kind of did a little bit of a self-assessment and asked myself, well, can you do one more long run? And my answer was yes. So I, at that point, I kind of switched focus from, okay, I'm out here to run 100 miles or 12 hours today to I just got to do one more long run, which I've done tons of in the past. I had a way better point of reference for that than I did, you know, the handful of times I've been on a track for an ultra marathon. So that kind of allowed me to, I think, 
really kind of believe that I could kind of keep the momentum going there. So then when I hit 80, it kind of went from less fear of what had happened in 2015 at mile 80 to more of a mindset of it's been almost four years since I was at that point, And now I have a chance to kind of do it, make it happen differently this time. So when I got to 80 at the Pettit center, I was just motivated to see how fast I could run that last 20 miles and kind of fix what I messed up in 2015. And I was running some of my fastest miles at the end of that race. So I ended up negative splitting the day in like a 538 for the second 50 miles. And the first was a 540 um, and some change. So that, that was also the first hundred miler I'd ever negative split. It was like probably the cleanest race I've ever had in terms of just having everything go well logistically from a fueling, a hydration standpoint, minimal stoppages. I think I stopped three times for maybe a total of about four minutes. Um, so like everything just kind of clicked. So that was pretty motivating to kind of piece that one together and also just learn that like, if you get to 50, it's not a guarantee that you're going to run slower the second 50 miles. You have to kind of believe that there's a potential to run faster the second half. Uh, and I think that's just a huge psychological thing. I think in the past, sometimes like I'd get to 50 or midway through a hundred miler and I would think it's inevitable that I'm going to slow down. The question isn't if the question is how much. And when you come through halfway at like 540, and you know in your mind you're going to run slower the second 50, you're on razor's edge. So I think that's just a bad place to put yourself mentally. Whereas this time, I didn't really think about that too much. I just thought about, like, let's get this next little benchmark done and then keep going from there. And before you know it, you're at a point where you can kind of wrap your head around what's left. And and then it's just, you know, keep, keep on doing what's been working and, and lean on your training and lean on how much work you've put in to get yourself there in the first place and 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 see what can happen at the end. That's amazing. Fastest mile I've ever ran is 533. <laughs> That's moving. <laughs> what, a, what a perspective shift. That is amazing, man. Congratulations <laughs> on that one. Thanks. Who's counting your laps and, and, and scoring this when you, mm -hmm. when you do an event like this? Yeah, most of these events that are like kind of short loop like this, they'll set up timing mats so that every time you finish a lap, it'll like calculate your splits. It'll give you your average pace, your total time, that lap time, the mile time and all that stuff. So a lot of the events now, they'll put those out there and they'll have like a huge TV screen where you can actually you cross the mat and like maybe 15 meters later, you go by a screen where your name pops up and it says how fast that lap was. So you have like unlimited amount to or access to information if you want it right. uh that's how they they keep keep track of it though so let's transition over to this treadmill 100 mile world record which were you worried you were going to run out of oxygen in the room <laughs> yeah it you know one of the hardest things with that was kind of like we talked about in the beginning was there's like this kind of desire this curiosity about doing something you've never done before and some of that's the draw and I would definitely put this treadmill event kind of in that category because, you know, I'd run on the 100 mile distance enough to know kind of what to expect. But there's differences on a treadmill than there are on a track or on a trail and all this stuff. So um, I'd never run more than 30 miles on a treadmill coming in. So I knew there was going to be a lot, a lot of just kind of figuring things out as they went along. And then there was also the the aspect that uh, the reason I was on the treadmill in the first place was because of all the sheltering in place and race cancellations from the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. So, you know, I had a, 
I was kind of part athlete, part event planner. <laughs> and, you know, so there's, there's like a couple, there's, you, you kind of have two different roles on a situation like that when it's like someone else's race that they take care of all that, that stuff. And then you just show up and see what you got on the day. So, um, it was interesting to kind of do that. And then there's also like, you know, just like, you never know like what could happen. Like if your treadmill breaks or there's a power outage or something like that, and you, you don't want to get to mile 80 and then have that kind of ruin the the experience. So oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So there, I mean, there's a couple things that, that, I mean, with, with hundred milers in general, I usually go in with the mindset that something is going to happen that I won't, don't expect or haven't planned for. And I have to be ready to respond to that and just basically minimize the damage it can create. So like the two things at this particular event that kind of popped up that I wasn't necessarily planning on was we, we had an air conditioner, a fan, we had video recording equipment, we had two treadmills set up in this room, kind of on the corner of our house, and uh, we were actually running too much power through that room. And the screens on the treadmill would time out because of it. So early on, I was switching treadmills like really frequently. Like I think my first switch was at like just under three miles, and then I was switching back and forth as these screens would freeze up, because that's what we were, the treadmills would keep going, but the screens would freeze. And that's how we were, you know, counting miles in time. So as soon as it would stop recording that, I'd have to hop to the next one if I wanted to count my progress. So uh, um, eventually we figured out that it, it wasn't the treadmills that were malfunctioning. It was the power to the room. So we ran an extension cord across the other side of the house and plugged them over there. And after that, it was smooth sailing from a, a logistics standpoint. Um, but the other thing was I just really undervalued how much fluid I was going to need on, on there. Cause I thought like, I thought with bringing the thermostat down in the house as far as I could, and then putting a, a individual air conditioner room and some fans, I could bring the temp down low enough that it would be fairly close to my fueling and my, uh, my hydration plan from the Pettit center, but it just wasn't the reality. And I got behind on fluids probably pretty early, like maybe two hours in. And then had to play a little bit of catch up for a few, for two or three hours before I started to feel like I was kind of back on track with that. Um, so those were kind of the two things I had to like kind of navigate that I didn't anticipate going in. Um, and that if I had to do another one, I would definitely account for a little better, but, uh, you know, it, it was, it was a lot of fun to do it. It was kind of a unique experience. I think I'd been watching some of these guys like Dave Proctor who had the record before and, um, Jacob Puzio has the 50 mile world best. He, he averaged sub six minute pace for 50 miles on a treadmill at an expo a few years back. So like I was aware that these records were out there. So when my race, my hundred mile goal race for April got canceled, I thought, well, I'm far enough into the training block that I would like to leverage this fitness if I can get something put together. And, um, I was fortunate enough that you know, NordaTrack wanted to wanted to help out with it, and some of my other sponsors like S Fuels and Ultra Footwear wanted to help out with like the the marketing side of things too, and and uh, ultimately turned it into more than just uh, essentially the running equivalent of watching paint dry, which would be a live stream <laughs> of me on a treadmill. <laughs> and we we ended up bringing in almost thirty people from hosts to guest speakers and things like that. We had some oh, uh, some of the we had Courtney DeWalter who is fairly unarguably the best female ultra runner on the planet. And um, Burt Kreischer, who's one of the top comedians in the U.S. right now, come on the live stream and, and share some of their insights and stories with uh, with anyone who's watching along. So it was a fun event to kind of plan and put together. And uh, it, was, it was, I felt like a good use of my energy given the situation. 
<laughs> oh man. So you're on this. What was your time by the way on the treadmill? Uh, 12 hours, nine minutes and 15 seconds. Man, and how do you, how is there, is Nordic track, how are, how do you calibrate this treadmill? Yeah, so for me, for this, like when I first planned it, I had a, a Nordic track treadmill that I'll just use from time to time in training. And when I reached out to them, I just kind of told them, I'm going to be doing this uh, with one of your machines. And, uh, you know, my original plan was just to live stream it. So I had documentation and then, you know, get that older treadmill calibrated and they uh, they were interested though, so they were like, "Well, if you don't mind, we'll send some of our engineers over and set up one of our newer models and get it all set up for you, so that it's ready to go for the day of." So I was really fortunate. I had like two brand new machines that had brought been brought in earlier, like the week of the the event, that were kind of fine tuned for it. So uh, I guess I was fortunate that Nordatrack wanted to be part of the whole <laughs> the whole operation. <laughs> no, I bet they were freaking out when the screens were going out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, they don't know what's going on either. Yeah. As, they're as like, we've never we seen don't. this. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're making phone calls. What's going on with this? Yeah. There's a, <laughs> yeah, but it was a, you know, it went it went as well as it could have given the relative amount of uncertainty you have hosting an event at your your own house versus you know, having it at an expo or something where they're going to have everything kind of fine tuned ahead of time. Uh, and, and some backup plans probably, I mean, we had more backup plans than most people chasing something like this in their house. Cause most people probably wouldn't have two treadmills set up like I did, but, um, thankfully that was the case. So we were able to navigate any of my lack of foresight with the power situation. <laughs> my, when I look at this, it seems like you would go faster on a treadmill for a hundred miles because you don't have the wind resistance and mm -hmm. I don't know, it just seems like you would go faster. Why, why is it, why is it the opposite? Yeah, no, I agree. I think the treadmill is a faster environment on paper. I think like just the mechanics and the energy expenditure and the no turning, no moving out to lane two to go around somebody, mm -hmm. anything like that. Uh, so I think it is from just a purely physiological standpoint where it was where I fell short of matching or bettering my fastest time, I think was just the relative inexperience. So at the Pettit Center, I had done that type of event, I think, six times. So I really just knew what to expect and I knew how to navigate like some of the lows a little better. Um, I also like the treadmill stuff, the the fluid Bal the fuel, the hydration side of things like um, if I could go back and fix that I'm sure I would have shaved some time off if I would have been if I would have had the treadmill set up so I wouldn't have to switch as frequently um, that would have helped for to a degree as well so there's just a lot more learning I think on this and it's probably something I'd have to do if I could do it like two or three more times I think I could bring my time down quite a bit on the treadmill just once I kind of learn learn that but it's also just a different kind of psychological experience that I would have to learn how to overcome in a different way where when I'm on the track I never feel like I want to be stopping in the sense that like like I mean I want to stop but I if I'm focusing on the goal it's not like it, it's a background noise for the most part whereas on the treadmill there's like this weird kind of psychological thing going on where since you're setting it and responding to it you almost feel like you've lost control and that kind of eats mm, away at you. So you want to be like, like you, you just want to get off the machine like so badly after a certain point. You just hate that thing. 
Yeah, uh-huh. and it's it's almost like the way I describe it is it's like when you're in middle school and like one of the adults in your life tells you to do something, you want to do the opposite just because they told you to do it. <laughs> it's like the same thing. It's like this machine's telling me I have to run a 650 mile and I don't want to run a 650 mile. Oh. So you can, you can manipulate that a little bit or hack it by changing your speeds a lot, which is what I ended up doing. But there was also just a lot more stoppage. Um, I stopped three times at the Pettit Center where I, I got off the treadmill um, you know, well over 10 times. So I lost a lot of time from non-moving time versus those two things. So it's just I think it's just something I'd have to probably learn a little more and fine tune and uh, go in with a little bit of a more treadmill specific build up leading in because I also found out that I was going to do this after my race got canceled, which gave me maybe about four or five weeks of specific training. So I definitely spent some time on a treadmill with that time. But in an ideal world, I probably would have gotten a couple more back-to-back long runs in, really figured out just like the climate situation as to like how much fluid I would need on in that environment versus the Pettit Center, as well as had the um, the treadmills extension cord set up for before the event and kind of things like that. So uh, some of it's just like I think that that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, so I, I think actually like the shorter the race the more advantageous a treadmill becomes just because like you can eliminate some of that mental like psychological eating away the sooner you can get off of it so like to do a 50k or a 50 mile i think maybe is relatively short enough where you can just kind of grind out and push through some of that whereas for 100 miles at least for me it was a little harder to do that and that made me uh, probably get off the machine a few more times than i would have liked to in an, in an optimal situation man good on you dude what a great covid project man Yeah, no, it felt it felt like uh, like the right time to do it. And like I said, I was kind of familiar with some of the treadmill stuff, so I was interested in it. I just didn't really have a good spot to put it because there's so many events you can do, and it seems kind of like a I don't want to say a wasted effort to hop on a treadmill for an ultra marathon, but it is. Uh, But but yeah, (laughs) relative to some of these iconic courses and you know other other things, I'm a little more interested in probably it it would be. But when there's nothing else available, I think it's. uh, it's a, the time. It's like the time is now, I guess. <laughs> no, nah, man. Planning something like that, pulling it off, getting it all together, and doing it—that's no small feat, man. Good on you, for real. Um, man, you've done so many different events, from mountain hundred milers to treadmill events. To what's your favorite? What's been your favorite uh, event? You know, I like. I really like the running aspect of ultra marathon versus like some of the courses where they require a like a heavy if not primary like hiking component to it like i get i get the draw from that sort of stuff you get like these uh courses like the hard rock 100 where it's just super steep like you're up in like 10,000 plus feet the whole day basically and um it's pure mountain course um i don't really like to compete in those environments quite as much as maybe some people do i like the running aspect so for me, like the perfect medium is like a really runnable trail. Like we've got a race out here called the Havelina Hundred that I, I love that course because it kind of blends where my skills are, but also gives you the kind of that trail feel or that outdoor environment kind of a feel as well. Um, so if I had to pick a course or the type of course, I would say it's like you know a rev- relatively tame from a climbing and descending standpoint, runnable trail, uh, and if I can get a loop, even better. <laughs> nice. What's your lowest moment been? Uh, I would probably say in 2015, miles 80 to 100 at Desert Solstice, even though I had a, 
a good day overall there running 11 hours and 40 minutes it was like just like the amount of just kind of pain and torture that that last 20 miles was was probably about as bad as it's gotten for me um for races that i've stuck out for the entirety of so that was that's probably like my lowest point in a race describe to me describe to me some of this pain uh you know it was weird it was like i got to 80 the race director told me you just need to average seven flats for this last 20 miles and you'll break the world record and I remember thinking, I looked at my splits, I'm like, well, I'm going slower than seven minute pace, so I have to pick up. And I decided, okay, I'm gonna give this one more go and see if I can get down. I ran maybe a mile and a half at right around seven and then just couldn't. So like, it was like just this like, kind of like, more so than physically like painful, I would just say it was kind of just like mentally kind of like discouraging to kind of see that opportunity float away and, and just feel like you physically couldn't do anything about it. So, um, that would probably, that just sticks out in my mind for whatever reason, um, as kind of like a lower point that, that I, that I haven't forgotten and likely won't. And I hope I don't because it's, it's it helps me now that I've gone through it and I can kind of use it as leverage to a degree at, in other events. Um, but in general, just within the sport, since I've been doing it for you know almost 10 years now, one of my lowest stretches probably in, in two, I've only had one significant injury since starting ultra marathon stuff. I've had some small things that just like a few days off kind of clears things up, but I had a stress fracture on my right sacral ala, which is basically your tailbone back in early 2017. And that, uh, took me off the starting line of the Western States 100 that year. And I basically had to spend the whole middle of the year just kind of regaining fitness and then uh, once I kind of got back and started racing again, I didn't really feel like I nailed any races in 2017 or or 2018. I had some good. I had a good day at Tunnel Hill 100 Mile at the end of 2018. And I had some kind of pretty decent B level races where I wasn't necessarily aiming to like go all out at, but had pretty solid days. Um, but nothing where I was just like, yeah, I just knocked it out of the park on that day for for a pretty good stretch of time in there. And then starting uh, starting out in 2018 was just like a little di- discouraging. And this is not too uncommon with ultra runners where like you get to this, a lot of times people will kind of come into the sport and be like, I'm gonna finish at all costs, and, like never drop out of a race type of a mentality. And then sometimes you get these like scenarios where then you drop out of one and you've kind of tasted that. And you know, you know it's possible, like it's not, you lose this mystique of like, um, I finish everything or I finish at all costs and, and then it just gets a little more inviting. You find yourself probably pulling the plug maybe a little earlier than you would typically need to. So I had a few races where a couple of them were a little bit out of my control where I went way off course or um, and in other words, I, I took a spill and like banged up my knee and then um, I ended up dropping out of that one. So like I had a string of races like that though where it just felt like everything that could go wrong went wrong and <laughs> Um, it was like three or four races in a row. So I feel like that was probably my lowest point from a career standpoint. But then in 2019, you know, you stick it out, you keep showing up, you keep doing what you know works. And, you know, as long as like, as long as you have the evidence in your training that shows that you should be ready for these things, you just got to keep showing up, I think. And I had no indication in my training that I was doing anything wrong or that workouts weren't going well. So I, I kind of just kept plugging away and in 2019 I had you know probably by far my best racing season of my career too so 
sometimes it's you just got to ride out those low side the lows even if it spans the course of a year or more and you know find yourself in the position to to capitalize when it when it comes up that's great advice right there i want to reiterate that for our listeners ride out the lows ride out the lows because there's going to be a high down the road you know as long as you're putting in the training as long as you're putting in the time that's Mm -hmm. really good what about your favorite moment what's been the pinnacle of your career yeah, I mean, I'd probably have to say uh, the 100-mile and 12-hour world records at the Pettit Center last August. That felt like I completed a goal that I had set almost six years earlier. So just like the amount of time and energy I spent in kind of fine-tuning that particular type of event uh, made just kind of checking that one off the list of accomplishments that much more meaningful versus like a more typical buildup where like I might spend four to six months kind of doing all the fine tuning and things like that leading into a race. So that, that one definitely sticks out as, as the most memorable. Hmm, very cool. What about the sport as a whole? Like what do you, in, in ultra running, it seems like there's a direction of going to longer and longer races. Where do you, where do you see the sport at and, and what's kind of your opinion on its direction right now? Yeah. You know, it's been interesting because when I got into the sport, it was kind of when it, just started to kind of re-expand back in 2010. So I kind of caught that first wave of, of like kind of let's get back out to these ultras and things like that. And uh, so just seeing it basically grow every year since then has been been really cool. And just the number of events that are available to folks is is just exponential compared to when I first started. So I, th- I mean I think that trend's gonna continue. And I actually think the trail side of things. And the ultra marathon side of things is going to be a little more inviting kind of once we get through the worst of COVID-19 because there's just, I think we can kind of set these environments up to be a little more mindful of that sort of an environment versus some of these like big city marathons where you have 40,000 plus people all packed into one little tiny area and then sending them all out. So like, I, I mean, I think like the running community is going to grow uh, when you see like economic downturns and you see like gyms close and things like that. People tend to turn to running and turn to these sports that are like kind of really kind of low bar to entry. I just need a pair of shoes and some running shorts and I'm off to the races, so to speak. So um, I think like we're going to see that growth rate even increase uh, as we move forward. And I think it's just going to highlight like all the different events. So like there'll be... I think the 100 miler will always have kind of this um, nostalgic type of feeling with it in North America. So like when people come in that are new to the sport, they'll probably learn that from people who've been in it and that'll carry forward. Uh, But I also am looking, I'm excited just to see like the wider talent pool come in. So like people can be a little more specific about what they're trained for. And we're seeing that even already where like, when I started the sport, it was like, well, you just did ultra marathons. I mean, you do 50 Ks, 50 miles, 100 Ks, 100 miles. You do trail, you do runnable trail, you could do road. And you'd see guys and gals do really well at all of them. Whereas now it's like if you get to a competitive field, you better have trained for that specific course or someone else has. So, <laughs> so I think we'll see some more specialization where like someone decides I'm just really good at like 100 K. I'm going to put a lot of my energy in fine tuning 100 K or someone decides I'm a real good mountain runner. I'm going to put all, a lot of my energy into becoming a good mountain runner. And just these different disciplines will have enough talent in them where we'll see a lot of, a lot of, uh, cool things and a lot of records broken and course records broken across the board, whether it's road track, 
trail or mountain and everything in between. Who's some of your f- favorite runners out there right now? Yeah, I mean, I love, like, if we're talking more current stuff, I really like watching uh, guys like Jim Walmsley race. Uh, I think he's just, he's he's just, I think, a, a level of, I don't want to say talent because the guy works incredibly hard, but he's certainly talented as well. Uh, but just the way he's kind of like ascended in the sport over the last five years has been pretty cool. Like he, he's broken the course record twice at Lake Sonoma 50 mile. And I mean, he's got the two fastest times and the next fastest is like 18 minutes slower than him. So, and that's one of the most tested 50 mile courses in the country. Uh, he's got the course record at the JFK 50 mile, which probably is the most tested 50 mile course in the country. And then course record at Western States two years in a row. So he's just been a fascinating guy to watch, kind of come into the sport and figure out what works for him and just knock it out of the park. And um, so I, I, I like watching him. I like watching Jared Hazen, too. He's uh, another Flagstaff guy who's somewhat uh, in the shadow of Jim because he's gotten second to him a few times at some big events. But uh, uh, he's kind of another one where just kind of puts his nose down and works really, really hard and finds success because of it. Uh, guys that kind of, when I got into the sport that really kind of kept me really like interested and excited are, uh, there's a Mike Morton was this guy who he, uh, he broke the course record at Western States, I believe it was in 97. And then he took about 10 years off from running cause he had this hip issue that just kind of plagued him. And then he got back into it kind of the same time I started doing ultra marathons and just went on this streak where he was like winning a ton of running these really fast flatter run 100 milers and then ultimately at the age of I think he was 42 getting third at Western States uh, behind uh, Rob Carr and Tim Olson. Tim Olson won and Rob Carr got second that year and those two guys are two of the best runners at Western States in the history of the sport um, to go along with like Jim Walmsley and Jared Hazen but uh, yeah so watching Mike Morton kind of just reinvent his career and just go on this tear back when I first started was like super inspirational Mm -hmm. to me and I'll always remember kind of his his stretcher races back then and that kind of kind of keep kept me interested and kept me excited during some of those early years where I hadn't really knocked anything out of the park quite yet well it's been fascinating dig into to some of these adventures and journeys and and things that you've done Zach is there is there anything else you feel like you'd want to mention before we shut this interview down um, yeah, I mean, I think just in general with running, it's 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 an open sport. It's like you don't have to be an ultra marathoner if you've never run before. Like, there's a lot of great races from 5K up. And um, what I like to tell a lot of people who are interested in getting into running or they want to get an ultra marathon running is, you know, be patient, be consistent, and start where you're at. You know, it's easy to find someone who's been doing it for years and say, well, I'm just going to do what this person did because it worked for them versus saying, well, where am I at? Where do I start from? And, uh, you know, I like to see people come in and say, okay, here's where I'm at. I run 20 miles a week. Uh, I need to build from there and then kind of just really embrace the experience of getting to where they ultimately want to be. And I think when people do that right, they give themselves small goals along the way. So, you know, maybe you want to run 100 miles someday, but uh, that doesn't mean you have to do it next weekend. <laughs> you can, you know, you can start in and, and say, okay, well, first I'm going to do you know, do a training block, a structured training block, and then I'm going to do some racing and then I'm going to kind of work my way up to ultra marathons and, uh, you know, ultimately picking a distance 
and an event that you really care about and that is on an environment that you really want to train on. Because I think like when you look at even a really long race, like 100 miles, it's not very long in time compared to the amount of time you're going to spend training for it, preparing for it, the amount of energy, money, and just resources you're going to expend to get yourself there and things like that. So if you're going to if you're going to do it, I think make sure you enjoy the process as much as the event itself so that it's something you can look back as a success even if you don't have the perfect race day that you were looking for. That's such a good point. And that's where you become a lifelong enthusiast. When you get to the point where you enjoy the process and mm-hmm. you know, obvi- you always want to do good. You always want to perform well, but if you're enjoying the process, that is where the real magic is at. I mean, obviously, you have to enjoy the process to accomplish the things that you've done in your career. Would you not agree? Yeah. You know, the way I, I always look at it like that, I should be able to show up at a race and have a terrible day and still be happy I did the training for it. If I find myself in a position where I don't, then I need to change something. So, you know, that that mindset or that kind of compass has helped me a lot in my career where I've gotten to points where it's like, I just need to do something. I need to train for something different that I haven't trained before. I need to switch environments so that I'm actually excited about that. And, and you know, when you're honest with yourself about that, I think that's when you end up giving yourself the the runway to, to meet your potential and, you know, complete a goal that you had by sometimes even stepping away from it. What's uh, what's your plans in the near future look like? Uh, you know, near future, I've, I've been a little more, I guess, ginger about getting back into full training just because there really hasn't been a whole lot of races popping back up on the schedule yet. So for me, it looks like it's just a good timeline to be a little more a little more conservative since I did have a really big racing year last year and. Uh, just making sure that when races do pop up, I'm ready to fresh enough to really like start peaking for them and things like that. So I'm basically kind of going back to some of the basics right now, uh, running a little lower volume, working on some speed work and things that are least specific to race day intensity itself. So that if I do have an opportunity to race this fall or winter that I can just kind of redirect things into the more specific types of workouts that will prepare me for race day intensity in the second half of the year. Uh, but at this moment, I don't have any events on the schedule. Uh, other than next year, I'm going to be doing a, pro- a big, the biggest project I've ever done by a long shot, which is a, a transcon project where you run from San Francisco to New York. So I'll be uh, doing that to raise awareness and donations for a charity called Fight for the Forgotten. Um, and that'll likely be in March next year. So that'll be a, if I don't race again this year because things don't pop back up for whatever reason, um, I'll just put more energy in getting ready for that. Very exciting. Where can our listeners follow you? Yeah, the easiest kind of one-stop spot is my website, which is zachbitter.com. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter, and Instagram is at zachbitter, and Twitter's at zbitter. Well, shut us down with some sponsor plugs, and uh, we're going to have to get you back on the show before you attempt this cross-country mission. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, John, and I'd love to come back on. for you know, My main sponsors are... Ultra Footwear, uh, S Fuels, um, Purpose Apparel, uh, Buff Headwear, and Koros Global Watches. Um, and then uh, if you're looking for any type of coaching, consulting stuff when it comes to running or endurance work, you can find that at my website at zachbitter.com. All right, there you go. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Zach, and we will catch you on the other side. Yeah, take care, John. Thanks again for having me on.